I love it. That's what I'm talking about. Who wouldn't serve God like this? see it play out in situations all day long. You turn on your favorite athletic event, all the players go out and warm up before they get into actual game play. They have to stretch. Yeah, they have to take practice shots or practice throws. They have to get in the right frame of mind. It's hard walking off the street straight into an activity as physical as that. So you have to warm up, and that's all these are. These are holy calisthenics. Warming up the, mu the muscles. For some reason, people think you have to be able to sing to do praise and worship. You don't. You just have to be able to praise and worship. Yeah. This activity is necessary. I love it when the musicians are not in, in charge anymore. <laughs> I love it. When they get one of those songs and they won't let them go. I love it. Yeah. When the Holy Spirit is playing the organ and the keyboards and the drum, singing, I love it. Get you one of those situations. One of these days, just walk around the house you'll find yourself having your own praise and worship if you haven't done it. It's absolutely an uplifting experience. You might be having a bad day. Just go get you a song, put it on repeat, and let that song minister to you. Nobody like it. He knows how to come to us in any medium. So grateful for him, and I'm grateful for having musicians who allow themselves to be used that way. That's so crucial. I understand it might not be your song, 
but it's not about the song. Not really. It's not about the song. It's about the connection that you make. Tell you what, there's a song. If, uh, if they knew it, Ambrosia made a song some years ago called Biggest Part of Me. Ambrosia was a singing group, is a singing group. Might not mean anything to you, might not do anything for you, but I know two people in here, if they hear Ambrosia singing the biggest part of me, it's their song. It means something. Yeah, they can sing the lyrics of the song. Takes them to a place that they've never been before. Take, takes them back to a place that we like to go to. But it might not do anything for you. That's how it is with everything. Before I start preaching today, I want to thank the Lord for how good he's been to me in so many ways, but I can tell you without a doubt, in my life, the greatest blessing he's ever given me is to give me Karen Sparks as my wife. That's the greatest blessing he's ever given me. So for 35 years tomorrow, we've been allowed to be together and figure out what being married is. And I can tell you right now that what we got today, 35 years later, is completely different from what we had when we started. We're not even the same people. We don't look the same. <laughs> you might get a, a, glint, a glint of us in the... <laughs> we don't look the same. We don't talk the same. We don't react the same. Life has brought us good and bad together. Life has, shown, life has shown us ups and downs together. And I'm so thankful I wouldn't, I wouldn't walk it with nobody but her. And I'm thanking God that he gave us this. This conversation we're having is not even supposed to be. COVID made this possible. Because today we're supposed to be in Hawaii. Yeah, it was our plan to celebrate our 35th wedding anniversary in Hawaii. And COVID said that couldn't happen right now. So we're okay with that. We're okay with that because we never had a honeymoon anyway. Yeah. We, we went straight from wedding to work. Wedding on Saturday, work on Monday. Yeah. So we're okay. We'll get it in where we can fit it in. Just being together, though, makes it possible. So Karen, for the world, I still do, 35 years later. God bless you. I love you. Thank God for you being who you are. Thank you for the monsters. <laughs> the two monsters you gave me. <laughs> yeah. That was a point of personal privilege. Um, you know, love is like that. When we met back at, in Tuskegee, I had nothing but a hope and the possibility of doing something right. That was enough for her at the time. 
she's watched the ups and the downs, and, and I've seen that with her as well. Yeah. We had many more parents than we have now. Grandparents, all gone to glory. But that's what life is. You walk it together. You thank God for how he brings you through it. I'm thankful for you being here today. So let's see if we got a last message in this fatherhood series. And I think we do. Father, you may not have thought about in Scripture. It's found in Genesis chapter 5. A few verses in there, verses 21 through 24. Today I want to talk for a little bit about Methuselah's father. Methuselah's father. Just for a little bit. Methuselah's father. Genesis 5, 21 through 24. Moses wrote these words. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he became the father of Methuselah. After he became the father of Methuselah, Enoch walked faithfully with God 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Enoch lived a total of 365 years. Verse 24, Enoch walked faithfully with God. Watch this now, because you won't see this in Scripture, but one other place. This next line, then he was no more, because God took him away. Enoch walked faithfully with God. Then he was no more, because God took him away. I like watching men lead their families. It's one of those voyeuristic things where you pay attention to how a man acts around his family. You see what kind of example he's setting for his household. It's not even something you get up and you talk about, but you pay attention to what he's doing, how he interacts with his children, how he interacts with his wife. You can probably rest on the notion that that father is going to have so many unspoken influences on those children's lives just by the way he walks, just by the way he carries himself, just by the activities he engages in. I saw it this month. I saw it this month. I saw a wise man once told me over and over again. I saw all these young people tell their fathers or father figures how they've been influenced by them. And if those fathers were watching, they were probably surprised to hear that those young men were paying that much attention to them. But everything we do is a testimony. Whether it's good or whether it's bad, it's a testimony. They are paying such close attention to us. We have to be so aware of what we're doing because there are some lessons they see us, they, they learn from us, that are hard to unlearn. Yeah, and the reason is because you are the master teacher. And when you're a father, you have your children in a master class every day, a master class of life. And you know that's, even, that's so important, it's become a series. They go out and get these people in these professions 
that have been doing something for 20, 30, 40 years and become the top of their field, and then they bring aspiring people in and they put them in a master class. And those artists or musicians sit there and try to tell them, encapsulate what they've done through the years. And students try to learn from them. Daddy, from the moment baby boy, baby girl is born, they're in a master class. They're paying attention to you. Not only are they paying attention to you and what you say, they're paying attention to how other people interact with you. They have a, they have a more global perspective on who their daddy is. They know what the room feels like when their daddy walks in. They know how other people react when their daddy walks in. They know if it's respectful or if it's a rejection. They know that feeling. They pay attention to how their father engages people. Not what you say, but what you do. They pay attention to those things every day. And can I tell you this? The things you do prior to becoming a father feed into the time that you actually become one. The friends you associate with have a bearing on who you are as a father because I, I just told you, your children aren't just paying attention to you, they're paying attention to the folk around you, how you interact with them. So what does a life that's pleasing to God look like? If that's even a concern of yours, does it matter that God would be pleased with you as not just a man, that's important, that's important, but as a father? Does that matter to you? Every Christian man wrestles with the question of how am I seen in God's eyes? Does God, is God pleased with me? It's a crucial question. It frames how we walk, how we talk. Watch this. I just told you about someone in Scripture, Enoch, who's not even mentioned very much. And yet, hear me, he makes it into the hall of faith in Hebrews 11. This man, whose son, because of the length of time he lived, is more remembered in Scripture, Methuselah, is recorded as a person who lived the longest ever recorded in Scripture. About a few years anyway. He's recorded and remembered. Most kids in Sunday school will be able to tell you the name Methuselah. And probably because it's one of those names that just jumps out at you. Methuselah. But who did Methuselah learn to be a man from? Who guided him and, pro and, and projected how you deal with people to him? And I just told you, his name is Enoch. And yet, even though Enoch is not as remembered, maybe not even known as his son, Enoch makes it into the hall of faith. You never read that in Hebrews chapter 11. Go read all the ones who made it into what the writer calls the hall of faith for all the things they've done in life. The portrait that's, that's drawn about Enoch is actually an inspiring one, even though we don't hear that much about him. This passage I just read you from chapter 5 of, of Genesis doesn't give you a whole lot, 
basically says he was a dad, he walked faithfully, faithfully with God, and he had other sons and daughters. That's what he comes down to. But in those, those few words, we can read a lot about who Enoch actually was. It's clear that the author of Hebrews 11 has Genesis 5 in his mind when he's talking about Enoch. It's clear that that's on his mind. But that's how we learn that Enoch earned his place in the heroes of faith. You want to know who else? You don't have to do a whole lot to be in the household of faith, except it has to be a big thing when you do it. It doesn't have to be for years. Rahab was a prostitute. But she saved the two spies. And she ends up in the heroes hall of faith. It has to be meaningful what you do. So what is so meaningful about what Enoch does? Is it enough just that he happens to be the father of the man who lived the longest? Is that going to get you into the hall of faith? I think not. No, no. I think not. It has to be something about his walk. Something about how he interacted, not just with people, but with God. So by the time we meet Enoch in Genesis chapter 5, a whole lot has gone on. If I can set the stage for you. Not only has the work of cre creation been completed, Genesis 5, creation is done. Adam and Eve are in place. Cain and Abel have basically become the first problem children. Maybe I should say more uh, Cain than Abel. Abel becomes the first victim of homicide, patricide. Fratricide, fratricide, killed by his brother. Adam and Eve, the first parents, first dysfunctional family. And so all the way from the beginning of the Bible, we got families in trouble. We got families with problems. We got families stepping away from what God has told them to do and trying to right the ship. And toward the end of Genesis 4, we start seeing a character who has to be talked about in the context of Enoch. Because if Enoch is the good, this character is the polar opposite of what Enoch is. And his name is Lamech. Lamech, he is a, an in-your-face kind of figure according to scripture. He's the antithesis of Enoch. But in order to understand and appreciate why Enoch ended up in the Hall of Fame, then you have to talk about him and Lamech at the same time. They're viewed as actors who are on the same stage at the same time. The yin and the yang, the good and the bad. Just like Cain and Abel were good and bad, these are the descendants of Cain and Abel. In fact, they come out of the lineage of these two individuals. They were also the human beings that would develop into two opposing kingdoms that still we're dealing with today, and that is the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. Yeah, these were the precursors to it. And this is why someone you don't really hear about in Scripture, Enoch, can become so significant and be in the Hall of Fame. Hall of Faith. Lamech is the seventh son of Adam in the line of Cain. He's the seventh son. He has no, pro no problem 
proudly exalting himself. Yeah, he's a kingdom builder, but he's building the worst kind of kingdom. His singular goal is to glorify himself. He's loud, he's self-exalting, and has no problem, even with his great, with, even with his elder brother's heritage, Lamech has reached a point where he has no problem crowing about the fact that he killed a man. Even though his older brother was murdered by his brother, he has no problem saying that. He makes it perfectly clear that that's what he's all about. He is Cain perfected. And that's not good. Yeah. If Cain's revenge for being displaced from the garden is sevenfold, then Lamech's revenge is 77-fold. This is how awful this man is. So if you put him as a backdrop at the time, and then you draw in Enoch, you see how important it is for this awful man who existed to walk alongside this good man who walked with God. Everything has to be put into context. And the reason why Enoch can, can wind up in the hall of faith is because he was so good at the time. By faith, scripture says, Enoch walked in the ways of God, and he did so, watch this now, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation of people. So as a backdrop to him living and setting a good example, Enoch is having to deal with all manner of evil all around him, and yet he remains good and faithful. Some people, some fathers have the wrong concept of what being a dad is all about. Yeah. They got to the place where they think, I got all these children and they are here to serve me. Yeah, but right thinking fathers know that that's absolutely not the case. That if God has blessed you with this number of children, then in fact, your job is not to be served by them but it's to serve them. It's to bring them up in a proper fashion. That's a lesson that has to be taught by someone. You got to have a walk that's, that's reflective of that. You can't always be to go get me some Kool-Aid, Dad. No, 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 no. That may be a time. When you want to go get you a glass of Kool-Aid, but surely they have to see you doing more, being more than to go fetch me something. Some kids have never had an example of who their father is. Jesus, I'm jumping from the Old Testament to the New Testament, had to correct the thinking of disciples who had probably been brought up in the notion that the children serve the elders and fathers. There's nothing wrong with that. Except Jesus had to turn that upside down when he said, in this kingdom, he who must be great must be a servant. How did he do that? He did it by demonstrating what service is. He served his disciples and messed them up when he did it. They begged him, no, master, you shouldn't do that. But he taught them 
that greatness comes from how you interact and deal with other people. Galatians 5 and 13 says, you, my brothers, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. I believe that also covers the job of being a father. And so what is it about Enoch that instructs us on how to be a father such that we too can be secure in our knowledge that our walk with the Lord is well pleasing? Well, the first thing Enoch teaches us from Galatians 5, in those verses there, 21 through 24, he teaches us that a father's walk includes God's fellowship. He's got to have some fellowship with the Lord. That's crucial. Now, you know and I know that as we grow up, we pull a whole lot of stuff into our lives. All the things we like. We're honest with ourselves. Most of those things we like because they make us feel good. We like being involved in it. We like good music. We, might, we like eating good stuff. We like drinking good stuff. We like being around people who like us. And we like being around people who are like us. And whenever we get outside of those parameters, it's usually problematic. And we push back real hard on people who try to limit our ability to do that. What you mean you don't like my music? I like the music, so it's good. Yeah. What, what, so what? I like the music, no matter that it's degrading. Not just me but other folk around you, that doesn't matter. Why? Because I like it. I like it. And we start getting old and we realize that those things that only I like can be problematic because I can't usually find folk to come be with me if all I ever want to do is what I like to do. Watch this. Children learn that really early. If they want to be the boss at every game, every time, then they realize that other children don't want to play with them. It can't be that way. You got to learn to share. Okay, this time you be the teacher. I'll be the student. Okay, this time you be the preacher. I'll be in the pews. Okay, this time you don't play in the pickup game. We're going to let him play because he hasn't played a game. We learn as we get older, we have to share and bring people into the group or it's, it's problematic. That's just what life brings us. Nothing worse than selfish grown folk. It's wrong. You learn that as you get older. You can't always have everything your way. You're squeezing the joy out of the situation. You can't be selfish like that. But you have to have a place to draw that experience from. Prayerfully, you had somebody in your life, like a father or a mother, who taught you how to share. But you got to learn how to have a fellowship with someone who can teach you those things. Enoch apparently was able to teach his children that life was not just about their own feel good that it was about dealing with others and helping them to do better, serving them. Walking with God gives you that kind of perspective in life. I doubt very seriously you're going to be selfish if, if you walk with the Lord. If you made up in your mind that I'm going to walk with him, 
you read, study his precepts, selfishness is going to be squeezed out of the perspective. And pretty soon people are going to start knowing that you walk with the Lord. And that becomes a part of who you are and how your witness is. Let me give you an example on that. There was a doctor named Charles Wagle. He's a, he, was, he was a doctor by training, but he also was a, a hymn writer. He wrote a few famous hymns. One day he was visiting Pasadena, California. Before, and he was, he was there for a convention. Before he was able to go into the convention that morning, he was able to visit some of the attractions in the Pasadena area. You know, Pasadena is where they have the famous Rose Bowl. That's where the Tournament of Roses is. And they're famous there for Rose Gardens. And so he goes to one of the famous Rose Gardens before he goes into the convention and walks through. And he's amazed at the beauty of the roses. He finds himself so enraptured by the roses that Deacon Hall, he loses time. And he realizes that he's about to be late for the start of the convention, so he hurries out of the Rose Garden to the convention. And as he's walking in, he runs into one of his friends who said, Charles, slow down, slow down. As Charles walks up on him, he says, I can tell where you've been. He said, because I smell the roses from the Rose Gardens that you've been in. And therein lies the blessing of having a fellowship with the Lord. The fragrance of God's holiness ought to emanate from you just like those roses. People ought to be able to tell that you've been in the presence of the Lord when you come around them. Reverend Beverly, my former pastor, used to say all the time, I'm offended. He'd say this. I'm offended if I've been talking to somebody for more than five minutes and they can't tell I'm a child of a God. He said, I'm offended. There ought to be something in my conversation, something in how I hold myself, something in how I carry myself that lets them know that I've been born again and that I'm a child of God. And yet ask yourself, is that true of you? Can people tell where you walk, what you do, how you do it, just by the way you carry yourself? You've got to have a fellowship with the Lord. And Enoch shows us that having a fellowship with the Lord is crucial to how we're seen. What does that mean? That means I need to study. I would say a study so I can show myself approved. But you also ought to study so that you can show yourself a member of a part of the fellowship. If I'm with the Lord, I want to know more about him. I want to see what it is that makes him tick. Moses asked the Lord, the Lord said, Moses, you can ask anything of me. What is it that you want? And Moses said, Lord, I want to know you. I want to know you. No, what he meant by that is I want to see you. And God told him, no, no man can see me and live. He said, but get right there in that cliff, the cleft of that rock, that cave right there, and I'm going to cause the backside of my glory to pass by you. 
So you can just see how wonderful even the backside is. Now the backside of God is that wonderful. I can't imagine what a close-up. Moses got to know him in a way we never did. And the question is, do you want to get to know him? Not when you're sick and on your, on your, on your sick bed and you're calling out. The truth of the matter is you'll call out to anybody when you're sick like that. I'm talking about when you're up and life is good, things are well. Don't you want to know God? Don't you want him to help you live in those times? Because if he'll come to you during those times, he'll stay with you during the other times as well. Got to learn how to have a good fellowship with him. Enoch taught us that. Not only did he teach us that walking with God teaches us the importance of a private fellowship and devotional life with him, we also know that my walk is going to influence people other than myself. It's going to influence my children. Yeah, if I have a solid walk with the Lord, Enoch shows us that it's going to affect my children. And may I say, my wife. My whole household will be positively affected by it. You know what, Cass, you want your house to do better? Walk closer to the Lord. Not only do you benefit, Jessica, all your boys benefit by you walking closer to the Lord. Same thing with you, Richard, Reggie. Same thing happens. You walk closer to the Lord and it lifts all boats. Everybody does better. If they want to. If they want to, at a certain point in time, everybody gets freedom of choice. It doesn't matter how good things are going, somebody can choose not to do so good. They can strike out on their own. Watch this. Let me show you how a father's walk influences his children. There was a young man who was sentenced, be, about to be sentenced by a judge. He was about to go to prison. Sad thing about it is the judge had known this young man since childhood because he was acquainted with the, man, the, the, the young man's father, who was a famous legal scholar in the community. And he was the author of an extensive study that most lawyers had had to study as they went through through law school. And so as he was about to sentence the young man, the judge asked him, do you remember your father? And the young man looks him squarely in the eyes and says, I remember him well, your honor. And because he thought that the young man had tried to start to be a little flippant in the conversation, he wanted to see where he was going, the judge says, as I'm about to sentence you, I want you to think of your wonderful dad. And tell me what you remember mostly about him. The young man didn't hesitate. He started answering the, young, the, the, the judge almost before the question came out. He said, I remember when I went to him for advice, he looked up at me from the book he was writing and told me he didn't have time for me. He told me to run along and do something else. He said, I remember when I went to him and asked him if we could go out and spend some time together fishing or something. He turned me away and said, I don't have time for that kind of stuff, young man. I got to finish this book. He said, Your Honor, you remember him as a great lawyer. He said, but I remember him as a friend I never had. He never helped me the way 
that you probably think you could have. Children remember. And the perspective that people have in the community of you doesn't always feed down into the actual relationship that your family has with you. The judge listened to him, and he said to himself, he finished the book, but he lost the boy. How many of us have spent so much time doing worldly things that we have lost the connection with our children? And so it's clear that if a father wants to have influence on his children that's lasting for good, he's got to be willing to walk with the Lord, have fellowship with him, and he's got to be willing to pay attention to his children. What does that mean? That means there's a second story of a young man, dad, who was worried because his little boy kept taking too much time to come home from school. He had to walk from school every day. And the daddy said, why does it take you an hour to come home from school when the school is really only about 10 or 15 minutes away? And so the daddy decided that he was going to go and walk with him one day. The little boy was only six years old. School wasn't that far away. This was a time when kids walked to school regularly. We remember those times. And so the daddy came back, and he understood why the little boy took so much time. See, he had calculated the physical distance between the school and his house. But what he had not included was how much time it takes for a six-year-old boy to watch ants when he's walking home. And what he didn't include in his story was how many times you can swing around a pole when you're walking home. And he also didn't know that it's really, really interesting, interesting to sit and watch dogs while you're out <laughs> on the way home. Daddy had forgotten what it was like to be a six-year-old boy and to see the world from a six-year-old boy's perspective. He was putting an adult theory on a child's walk. He had stopped being with his son. And he realized from that point forward, I've got to be intimate with my son and watch him grow. That's how you influence a child. We all got work to do to get better. But can I tell you this? You have to be intentional in how you do that work. And so a father's walk influences his children. And then lastly, a father's walk also incorporates his own witness. I got to tell people how good God has been to me. I got to show people how good God has been to me. Enoch prophesied regularly on sin. Remember now, he's got Lamech over here who's living his hellish life. He's got Lamech over here who's leading people down the wrong path. Enoch is over here on the other side denouncing that kind of lifestyle. He's saying, that's not the way you should live. That's not the way I want my children to live. He had no problem testifying to how good God had been to him. Your children ought to hear you say wrong is wrong. Your children ought to see you and understand that you understand that God is watching everything we do. That God is going to hold us accountable. And that one day, he was going to have to give an account on everything he had been given and done. So he preached against sin. That doesn't mean he was a preacher. That means he was a father. You have to tell your children, watch this. Why? Because it's wrong. 
You have to tell them why it's wrong. No longer can we tell children just do as I say. We got to show them that it's wrong. Preaching against something today will get you in trouble. People will say uh, uh, that you are, they'll cancel you real quick. Yeah, they'll cancel you. If you say something about an area that they feel endeared to, that doesn't mean you need to shut up. It just means you need to understand that you're going to have opposition. If you take a stand on anything, just because they try to cancel you because you say something's wrong don't mean it ain't wrong. It just means you stepped on somebody's toe. You need to be ready to deal with the consequences of it. Whatever the issue is, you make your own list and decide when and where and under what circumstances you think you ought to say something, but watch out! Because opposition is coming and how you handle that opposition, your children are going to be paying attention to you. And can I tell you this? You don't have to hate people because you don't like what they do. You don't have to hate them. No, you can simply not like the activity they are involved in and still love them. You can't love God and not love people. You're hypocritical when you say that. That's not right. The imperative in this walk we have is love. And when you don't show people love, then you're not walking in the way that God would have you to walk. One writer put it this way, Enoch preached without fear. He didn't become a hermit. He didn't shut himself away from the world because he had work to do for God in the world. We got to do the same thing. All Christians and all Christian fathers have work to do in the world, and that is to preach or present Christ as best they know how to. You may never step in a pulpit. You may never be the chairman of anything, but you are responsible for that child and how you present the Lord to them. And that's your responsibility. Do not fear the world. Why? Because he said, I've overcome the world. Yeah, there ain't nothing the world can do to me right now. The most they can try to do is kill me, and I've already overcome that. So you don't, have to, you don't have to be worried about them. I remember one more thing about Reverend Beverly, and then I'm out of here. The way you carry yourself can be so crucial. It can frame so many perspectives. You've never had the, 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 some of you have never had the opportunity to be in a pastor study before everybody go out before a service. Sometimes the conversations in a pastor study can turn unpastoral. You can be talking about everything but the love of God in the pastor study as you get ready. Some of that is nervousness. Some of that is just making conversation you're sitting there and you're preparing to go out to whatever evening program or morning program and somehow instead of talking about the service, you're talking about the football game from last night or the basketball game. I'm not saying it doesn't have to be anything untoward. It doesn't have to be anything evil. It's simply not focused. But I can't tell you the number of times I sat in a pastor study with Clyde Beverly Sr., who was known as a preacher's preacher. A pastor's pastor. When he walked in, from top to bottom, he was laid, he was ready. He stepped into the pastor's study, and suddenly the whole aura changed. 
Folks sitting there quiet like the principal just walked in. Wouldn't say anything while he was sitting there other than who going to pray? <laughs> who going? You going to read the scripture? <laughs> That's the way. And he never said anything. He was just in there. And the fact that he, in fact, I've seen him walk in the room and folks shut up. In mid-story, they would shut up like their own daddy had just walked in. And he might have been younger than them. That's the kind of way he carried himself. So respectful of the institution of preaching that he wouldn't let you and your immaturity devalue it. That's why we loved him. That's why we loved him, because he was at all times trying to represent. Now, don't get me wrong. I sat down and had enough conversations with Clyde Beverly that were full of fun, full of joy. We laughed. We joked. I'm talking about when he was on duty, when he was at church, when he was in the pastor study. He was about his father's business. And he put everything in perspective and he taught me. And I know some people sometimes look at me like I'm so serious about stuff. Why are you? Because there's a time and place for everything. And you have to teach your children that every place ain't for playing. There's some places you have to go and be serious. And you need to know the difference between the two. You got to teach that. Enoch was that man. God loved him. He taught his children. In the middle of all this wrong, God is still right. He taught his children to write. And for 300 and some odd years, he taught that to his children. He was the best example of a man he could be. That was Methuselah's father. And Methuselah had a chance to do it three times what his daddy did. But he did it based on his daddy's example. This is my prayer. Whatever in the world I do that my son does it three times better. But watch this. God gave Enoch the best blessing he could ever give him. You'll only see it two times in Scripture. There's nowhere recorded in Scripture that Enoch ever tasted death. Ever. You won't find it. Only the prophet Elijah got the same treatment. The Bible said the prophet left here in a flaming chariot while he was still alive, still preaching. And the Bible said that Enoch one day got up and he and the Lord were celebrating and walking and fellowshipping together. And I love the way the scripture said, and God took him. God took him. That means they just kept walking from here to glory. You, we, our minds can't even wrap around the notion that God loved him that much. That he said, Come on, walk with me. One little girl put it this way, to God and Enoch visited one another all the time, and God would usually come down and walk to Enoch's house, and they would sit there and talk and enjoy themselves, but on this last day, God said, Enoch, you come on, walk to my house. And he took him. Can I tell you, I don't have to have the example that Enoch had. I understand that we as people will taste death unless he comes back to us before, as long as I can be assured that through the blood of Jesus Christ that I too can experience the resurrection, then we can have the same blessing of living with the Lord forever. Can you wait? I can't wait to see Enoch in heaven. 
I can't wait to meet him, that famous, that famous man in heaven who never went through death and yet he lives with God right now. I can't wait to meet him and, and David and Mo, all of them are up there. I can't wait to see him. I can't wait to see you there. I can't wait to be there with you forever. I want all my family to be there with me. How can you say you love your folk? Have the ability to give them an eternal life and not tell them the way to get there. That's the greatest gift that a father can give his family is make sure that not only are we together on this side, but we're also together on the other side. Do you know the way? The Bible says all you have to do is believe in the sacrifice that Jesus Christ made. The same Jesus Christ who came as a babe grew up. And 33 odd years later, the Bible said he gave his life a ransom for us for all the sins we had committed. For all the Lamics of the world, Jesus died. Took on all the evil they had done upon himself. And he went to the grave. And the Bible said that God loved him so much that he reached into that grave and resurrected him. And when he resurrected him, he gave him the keys to eternal life. And all you and I have to do is believe in the sacrifice that he made. My question to you today is, do you? Do you believe it? And if you do believe that, just make that confession and accept Jesus' gift of eternal life. That's it. That's it. It's not any more complicated than that. And then live for him. Love him. Tell other folk about him. Walk with him every day of your life. He'll be with you. I know he will. God bless you today. I'm so glad to have been with you. We learned about Methuselah's daddy today. Some of you don't even know about your own daddy. It's okay. It's okay. You have a father who you haven't met before. He's simply waiting on you to call his name.